Chalice everywhere. It's five o'clock on a Friday, and that means it's time for another installment of Cello Chat. Very excited, as always, to uh, to be with you for this little bit of time before we start practicing in earnest all weekend. With me today is Eric Miller. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Very good. Very good. Can you introduce yourself to the audience and, and how did you get to where you are today? What's your background? Okay, so um, my background goes way back to my childhood in Omaha, Nebraska. I was fortunate enough to have a school program that had um, orchestra offered for second grade. So I started taking orchestra in second grade, played violin. Um, and both of my parents were music teachers in my school district. So I had music around the house growing up. And then it was always, it was all violin for second and third grade. And then you had the choice of switching to another instrument in fourth grade. I didn't want to play the violin because everybody else played the violin. Mm -hmm. um, my brother already played the viola. And my oldest brother played the bass. So I chose the cello. <laughs> uh, and uh, just participated in school orchestra um, all the way through, um, as well as band. I, I played in the band as well and um, the Omaha Youth Orchestras. Um, and I had a great teacher in Omaha, a member of the Omaha Symphony, who I didn't start taking serious lessons until ninth grade with him. Um, his name was Gregory Clinton, um, great cellist. And I got to see him last year, actually. It was really cool. Um, but, uh, you know, started working with him and he was so detailed and specific. And I, I, I realized that, you know, the cello is really difficult. <laughs> but also really fun to play. And um, all through that time, I kept playing trumpet. I, I kind of considered trumpet to be my main instrument at the time in high school. I was a very good high note player, so I could play, you know, kind of the lead jazz stuff. And I ended up getting a scholarship to Northern Illinois University, where I double majored on trumpet and cello. And while I was there, um, something about the cello drew me in more deeply. I remember um, the first, I think the first week of, of my undergraduate education, my teacher's string quartet there, um, the Vermeer Quartet, was doing a cycle of Beethoven quartets. And I'd never heard a Beethoven quartet live before. In the first concert, they played Opus 132 in A minor, and I just was blown away by that. And um, I think I just from there, I, I just gravitated towards the cello and, and loved um, the, the tone and the sound of it, but also the um, intricacy of figuring out the technique and the finger fingerings and the expression, the complexity of the repertoire. Um, but I always kept that piece in me that was a trumpet player that loved improvisation and um, big sound that, that kind of gets up um, in front of everybody, um, even though I'm a relatively quiet person. And so I got a, I got a um, music education degree there at Northern Illinois University. And um, after that, went for my master's at the University of Wisconsin and uh, studied with Perry Karp there on the cello. And all through this time, I had just picked up the viola da gamba. I had started playing it um, at Northern Illinois. Um, I think my last two years, I was playing viola da gamba in a small um, 
they call it a collegium or a small early music ensemble. And it wasn't very serious. I didn't practice and I missed a lot of notes, but it was just really fun and relaxing. And then during my master's, I had this feeling of pressure on my practicing. I had to practice my cello pieces. I had to you know, get better. Um, and then I would sort of cheat and play the viola gamba instead. <laughs> and it felt like I shouldn't really be doing this right now. I should really be doing my work. It sort of felt like the way it feels to you know, watch TV or something when you're not supposed to be. Um, so, but it was nice to have that balance of this instrument that nobody had any expectations on me. I wasn't studying with anybody. It's just this beautiful thing and I'm playing it, um, just to, just to explore it. And that sort of really changed my perspective of what practicing was, um, in a big way. And then after my master's degree, um, I, I started performing on the Viola Gamba quite a bit and then I had to actually, you know, really work hard on it and take lessons from people, um, and so on. And um, since that time, I've been doing Suzuki private lessons and also non-Suzuki, um, private cello lessons. Um, I was really inspired by um, going to Suzuki Institutes and getting the training and seeing great teachers um, and also seeing great students. It was very inspiring for me. And I've also taught in public school currently. I'm teaching in a school district in southern Wisconsin, Oregon School District, um, where I'm going to start a new new position teaching kind of a chamber music small group orchestra. <laughs> what drew you to trumpet in the first place? Um, you know, I wanted to play the French horn, and my mother told me that I couldn't play the French horn because then I wouldn't be able to be in jazz band. So she said I had to play trumpet. And then I wanted to play saxophone, but my brother played saxophone. Um, so I, I guess it had to be the trumpet. My father played trombone, so it couldn't be trombone. <laughs> you know, that's funny because there are house, households in which uh, like a sibling will play another instrument because that sibling plays another instrument. And in your case, you know, it, you were not going to play that instrument because they um, Yeah. Now, so you and you say you um, still enjoy improvising on the trumpet. Do you use your improvisational chops uh, skills to help cellists improvise as well? Um, yeah, I'm, I I use it on the cello. I use it on any instrument I pick up. But also, the skill of improv improvising is transferable to the skill of memorizing, and vice versa. Um, and that's a really crucial skill because you have to be able to take your mind off of the music and pay attention to what you're doing when you're playing. Um, and then I, I love to teach improvisation too. It takes kind of a special student that that's ready and willing to take that risk because it feels risky. Um, so, so I haven't had a lot of takers in my, in my specific cello teaching, but I have had students over the years that, that were really eager to improvise and I gave them some tools for that. Nice. I bet you were good at oral skills, your training. Um, you know, I think I did pretty well, but I didn't work very hard on it. Okay. So I, there's like a little guilt in that. I should no, have practiced the, it more. The reason you're the first person who has specifically mentioned the idea of a connection there between improvisation and memorization. And I think, I mean, <laughs> in your training class, we're trying very much to help the students like the the synapses to fire upstream and downstream equally well between 
the written pitch and the the aural pitch. And so, like what you're talking about, when when there's really no additional friction in between thinking one way or the other, then the idea of memorization and improvisation do map very well onto each other. But I think there are probably some people for whom they're thinking, what? Memorization? But there's nothing yet. If I'm making it up, what am I memorizing? But I, I totally agree. I think that's a very, very good thought. Um, mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And I also want to go back to when you said about when you're in the master's program and supposed to be practicing X or Y and going over to the, the GABA, I think that's another interesting thing. I think we probably all do that some as well, where the the GABA, where there wasn't any particular expectations and you could do whatever you wanted, it was, it was low hanging fruit. It was like trying to dig a hole where you'd already dug one, you know, before it's, it's easy going versus whatever repertoire at the time was probably something where you were either breaking new ground or having to solve something that was particularly recalcitrant or, or um, and so what if we use that as a segue then to talk about this idea of motivating students? What do you do with your students to try to help them uh, embrace that challenge of practicing and learn to to love it so they just you know can't wait to get out the instrument and really dig into whatever's on their agenda yeah well i think that the biggest thing is consistency as a teacher um in and there's different teaching contexts so when i'm teaching private lessons it's just the fact that if i don't ask a student to play something in the lesson even if i know they can do it i've noticed over the years that they don't practice it and so on my end, I have to be really on top of what they're doing and following up on, on things and also having specific goals. Um, and I, I'm seeing this with my son, actually. He's playing uh, violin now. He's eight years old. And, you know, he's doing minuet number one in Suzuki book, violin book one. And you have to use your fourth finger where it's on, on this E where it's easy just to play open E. So he's been playing open E for a few weeks. And practicing can be really a struggle um, for him. But if I just, if he knows, okay, my goal today is I'm gonna get that fourth finger down. This is a very simple example and, and college students and beyond are gonna be working on more complex problems, of course. Um, then you can, you can accomplish it, you know it's accomplishable and then it's done and you feel like, okay, I did it. Um, in terms of motivating, um, other students, so in, I've taught in orchestra settings where I started to ask students a weekly question or give them even a practicing assignment. Um, Google kind of, Google Classroom, I don't know if you use that at the college level, but Google Classroom opened up this whole new world for my teaching where I can put out a question to every student and get an answer back and see it all in one place. It's really quick and I don't have papers piling up or anything. But I started to just check in like, okay, we're working on this piece. And I need you to find a passage that, that you struggle on, or I would give you one, like this is a passage that everybody's struggling on. Um, and you're going to practice it this week. And I'll, I'll ask you a reflective question at the end of the week. How did it go? Um, and no pressure. And sometimes a student would say, you know, I didn't really get to it this week. 
Um, but sometimes a student would say, wow, practicing really helped. I feel a lot better about it. And I enjoyed playing in my orchestra more this week because I practiced that part and now I can play it. Um, so those are some of the things I think that you have to kind of take a non-judgmental attitude about practicing with yourself and with students. So you, you check in on it, but there's no, if you get mad, if you, if you, if you get serious, like, like, okay, this is really bad. You need to practice. Um, if you get hypercritical, that can push a person away from it. Um, and what we want to do is we want to grow a capacity for, for loving practice and it has to grow and it takes a long time to grow. I didn't like practicing. I don't think I practiced in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, just to be honest, not very much. Um, I did here and there, obviously, <laughs> but, and then in college I practiced a lot because I felt like I had to, because if I don't, I'm not going to be a good player. And now practicing is such a joy, um, as a, as an adult that, um, you know, because it's, it's almost, it's like something I'm doing for myself. I just love to do it. I love to play music. Um, and I think that it's possible to go from one to the other for practicing to be a joy. Um, but it does take some, some time. I like that. Your, your, um, like the use of the Google classroom question is in part guiding them to think like you do, to think like a teacher that self assessment, self-reflection. And I think that's a key thing that why a lot of people, I mean, in part, it's, it, I mean, it can be other factors as well, but when you are teaching and playing as a professional cellist, as your regular gig, your your brain has gotten so used to um, encountering challenges and problem solving them that it does it gets to be kind of like the way some people will sit down and do sudoku every day or something like that it's it's kind of fun and so uh if you know not to put words in your mouth or anything but with your own students to try and help them think a little bit more like that a little bit sooner um is that part of you know the the approach yeah i think that's it yeah um if you have a goal and you know what you're going to do, and then you actually solve it and get past the goal and accomplish it, and then you reflect, you realize that you can do this. And there's there's so much music that you'll get through where you might have seen the music and thought, no human being can ever play this. <laughs> and then someday you'll find yourself playing it. And that's that's really a great experience. That is really, that's so true. That never gets old, does it? Yeah. <laughs> It never stops either. <laughs> so now, uh, if you talk at least briefly about uh, what you think about in terms of the way you're uh, playing of the Dagamba and you're playing of the cello kind of influence each other, inform each other, uh, what do you think about the technique of the two and uh, how they relate? Um, there's a lot of technical differences that aren't apparent at first. At first, it's just, oh, there's um, six or seven strings now, and they're tuned differently, and I have to do it with frets. Um, but it's like a cello, but just, you know, maybe a little different sounding. Um, and I, I do want to say that, you know, we all love the Bach cello suites so much, and that was sort of the gateway to the viola de gamba, because 
that that Baroque contrapuntal sound world for a solo instrument. There's so much of that repertoire for the viola da gamba, which is one of the things that really drew me in. Um, but some of the things that the viola da gamba requires is a t totally different approach to uh, both the left and the right hand. Um, so in cello, we have a rather straight wrist and we really work hard on this, but the viola da gamba is more like this. <laughs> so we, we, we are down, the neck is a little farther away from the body and that can vary from player to player. And the reason why is we're facilitating chords. Um, and I know you have a chord book for the cello. Um, I've seen your chord book. Um, there's so many chord shapes for the viola da gamba and um, in order to, and, and there's six there's six string chords. In order to facilitate all these chords, the thumb becomes mobile mm. laterally, um, horizontally, I mean, and vertically. And the shape of the hand is going all over the place. Um, and also, I'll stick with the left hand for a bit too. There's there's a way that the fingers, the, the neck is very wide compared to a cello neck. So the fingers have to move in a lateral way um, that's very different. Um, and then of course you have the frets to hold down the notes. So another part of the technique, and this can influence um, if anybody's studying the Bach cello suites that's listening to this um, or plays them, um, you keep fingers down um, as long as you can comfortably so that they resonate. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, you can almost think of it like the pedal of a piano, um, the sustained pedal, um, which, sorry, the damper is what it's called, right? <laughs> um, uh, that you're, you're going to hold down that D while you're still in, in that D chord that's going on um, against the fret. So there's that going on. There's more side-by-side -side fingering going on where your second and third finger are together. And that has actually influenced my cello playing. So there's fingerings that, as a cellist, I never would have considered. Um, like maybe in the Sensons Concerto, that, that climbing passage. Um, or maybe something like the, the first Britain suite um, with all these chords where, um, wait, on the viola gamba, I do this and I'll do a whole step between my third and my fourth finger to, to reach something and it's totally fine. And, and actually doing this changes the flexibility of your fingers and, and the angle. So that's the left hand. Um, there's obviously a lot more to it. And then the right hand, um, the elbow in, in, the, in the viola gamba is down. And most people who come from the cello, you know, they'll, they'll play the viola gamba with their elbow out and it tenses up the hand. Um, so we have to have this elbow that's down and um, it's just, a, and of course the, the bow holds upside down too. So it's just a very different way of engaging. Um, I know that also from my pre-Viol de Gamba days, I was afraid of, what if I forgot my rock stuff? I can't play. <laughs> and there's no end pin on the Viol de Gamba. You actually learn that um, you don't need an end pin necessarily. Although I do use one for my modern cello playing. But I remember reading, I forget which, there was a collection of um, contemporary cello, cello manuals from the 19th century that was published, I think, fairly recently. Um, and I remember one of them said, there was a cello teacher that was saying, well, of course, everybody knows it's more comfortable to play without an pin, but more players are starting to use them now because they improved the sound. And that was the perspective. So... Those are some things that stand out. There's a lot more, of course, in the difference. Now, for example, with any of your cello students who are at all, you know, slow to 
get that idea, that feeling that of, of hanging weight using gravity in the right hand? Do you ever have them kind of hold the bow upside down so that it's naturally more hanging? Um, I haven't tried it upside down, but that's a good idea. I do do this thing called the cellist handshake, which is kind of popular in the Suzuki world. I'm, do you know what the cellist handshake? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I have them hang on it with their arm and do this floppy thing. Um, so I, but I, going upside down, that's a good idea. I, um, my son's violin teacher would have him hang on things. I remember that when he was starting. Oh, and then as far as your left hand comments, um, I guess one of my biggest pet peeves when I check out, uh, instruments that some students deal with in the school systems are when the strings are way high, super high on the cello. Because like what you're describing, if the action on the left hand, uh, you know, if, if it's not terribly far to get the string down on the cello, then applying these ideas are, are great. But sometimes when you, you say, oh, here, let me try on your instrument. And it's just crazy, crazy high. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, it's one of the, the things I don't, it doesn't seem to plague the Dagamba world of having strings too high, at least that I haven't seen. Well, there, there, if it's an older instrument, uh, builders of viola gambas, violas de gamba have gotten really good in the last, you know, few decades. And there's some older instruments when the builders didn't quite know what they were doing yet that are still circulating. And some of those can be kind of difficult to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, now let's see. A segue next to your website. I recommend everybody check out your website. And one of the things that's, that is there, of course, it takes time and effort to do these, but you have made available not only some recordings of your playing, but also some uh, of the teaching tips that you have. And um, just wonder, how did that come about that you um, decided to add those as well? Yeah. Um, so I had a little bit of extra time last spring and... Also, I decided I was going to, I'm homeschooling my son. And so I decided, you know, it might be good to offer like a homeschool offering um, for some students who want to, maybe they, they're not sure if they want to take lessons yet, um, but maybe if they tried it in a group setting, that was a little less pressure, that was a little cheaper, um, that would maybe give them a chance to kind of see what it's like and see if they wanted to continue. So I, I put that out as an offering that I do. Um, and it was great. It was really a lot of fun. Um, and I thought, well, you know, there's these things that I'm teaching and I've, I've always had this in the back of my mind when I'm sitting there, um, in, in teaching lessons, like this concept would make a great video, but I never had time, um, to do it. And so I decided, well, okay, I'm going to make some videos cause I have a little bit of extra time. I got a new camera that, um, I get to put, I love cameras. So I get to put my vintage, uh, manual camera lenses on it and, <laughs> so I'm that out. Um, and so I started with uh, some videos that would directly help those beginners in the group class with some of those ideas. For example, the bow hold and the posture. And I have a lot more ideas. And um, I also want to just play the, the repertoire, like the Suzuki cello repertoire that my students worked mm-hmm. on. So they have a video to watch and see. So that's kind of how that started. Excellent. Well, and I 
want to definitely give you a big shout out too for the that opportunity for uh, an orchestra that you that you direct for people who either don't have strings in their school program or people who homeschool. There's the number of people um, homeschooled around the country has really increased quite a bit. Uh, so, and I don't know, did you have formal training as a conductor as well, or, or how did you come up with that idea? Well, that's, um, I, I'm doing that homeschool group is more of a class, and I'm not really conducting. I'm, I'm playing the violin with them or cello. Right. It's beginners. Um, but I, I have done some conducting um, as a high school orchestra teacher, and I took conducting classes, although I've been studying up um, on some books, because it's really, that's that's a whole other art, art form in itself, is good conducting, yeah. um, being clear. And I think a lot of people make their own way, but if you do look at some of these books where the, somebody really knows what they're doing and has taught a lot of conductors, you realize, oh, I was doing, you know, I was doing this with my um, beat four and nobody would know where my beat four is. <laughs> or there's like exercises of keeping in the plane and, and all this stuff. So there's a technique there that's just like the cello is really interesting. Yeah, very cool. Now, let's see. So, would you talk also just a little bit about your, you have your solo CD of uh, Dagamba playing, and then you have several with Katie Burns. How did you, I mean, it's not necessarily automatic as a cellist that you connect with an a indie singer. How did, how did those come about as well? Um, sure. So uh, the the Viola da Gamba CD was I wanted to I wanted to do it just to like see if I could was a challenge to myself. Can I get these pieces as close to perfect as I can? Um, and so that's what I did. I recorded a suite by Dimashi, a great um, Viola da Gamba composer. He actually published the first set of solo Viola da Gamba pieces, the first published set in 1685. Then there's a sonata by uh, Johannes Schenk. Um, which is just beautiful. Um, and those are all on Spotify and stuff if you want to check them out. Because um, I know a lot of people aren't listening to CDs these days. Um, my work with Katie Burns, um, I, I really enjoy meeting new people and uh, playing with whoever, you know, if somebody said, you know, you have to have either good music, good people, or a lot of money to play a gig, and you need to have two of those three things. <laughs> but I love I love to meet new people. Um, I love to play in interesting places, and I'm pretty open minded about um, who I'll play with. And um, I, I I was doing this um, gig that was in a small town in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, and I I met this other person who was like sort of one of the singers on this gig, and that was Katie Burns. Mm -hmm. And um, later on, she said, "Would you just come and play on my album?" And um, you know, this I think this was when I started doing that kind of thing. I I'd done a, a little bit of this kind of thing with other songwriters. Often songwriters um, are great guitar players, great singers, but they don't necessarily read music. And they don't necessarily um, know what chords they're playing besides mm -hmm. just like, okay, this is the G chord that has that funny note in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but sometimes that way of thinking is so intuitive that, that so many beautiful things can come out of it. Um, and I definitely feel that way with Katie's music. Um, and so, but what, what the result of that is somebody will ask you to come and play with them. 
um, either on an album. And there's a lot of people that have done that over the years. Um, and I don't even know what happened to them or their albums, but I just came and played in the studio. But they don't really know what they want you to play. They just know that the cello is really beautiful and they want to have beautiful cello on their album. So um, I love to come in and be the beautiful cello guy. So um, that's how it started with Katie. Um, but uh, we just kind of kept working together and playing different gigs. And um, she she just ended up making a lot of albums. Um, and uh, I liked it because it, it exercised the improvisation part of my brain. And it also was a doorway into amplified and electronic playing, which I have gone on with um, since then, too. Very nice. Yeah, I love that particular attitude of enjoying meeting new people and playing whatever type of gig and whatever type of uh, locale and, and um, making the most of it is just such a healthy attitude as a performer. And I mean, I think that too can, um, can really help to not only keep you going, but lead to, to new connections. You, uh, you play with Philip Cerna, who has a early music ensemble in uh, the Chicago area. And you've played for American Players Theater, which is one of my favorite. Oh, we have, I think, tickets a week week from this weekend for Love Labor's Lot. I love APT. Um, but that's that's surely how those sorts of things and who knows what will what doors will open up for you next with that sort of attitude and approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um I I I read in one of your books that if you want to be in an orchestra, someday you will be. I think it was your manual to cello playing. I was looking over your books last week because <laughs> um, they're they're in my they're in my the office at my new job. Um, and you said, yeah, if you want to be in an orchestra, you will be. You will be successful. Um, and I remember being so crushed after college that I didn't get into an orchestra right away. Um, but I, I I got all these little gigs, and then I started to meet these people through these gigs and um somehow i'm still playing the cello and new new gigs come in and i get to play with great players yeah, um yeah. and i thought you know when i was 23 or whatever i thought my life was over <laughs> and it's not the case at all um if you just keep open and you keep playing because you love playing um, things will happen that's great. I love, love it. And, uh, and the rest of the audience are hearing the great words of inspiration. Well, in closing, Eric, uh, things coming down the pike this fall. What are some of the upcoming projects or performances? Um, so I play with a group called the Wisconsin Brook Ensemble, and we have a regular concert series. Um, we have a website if you just Google us, wisconsinbrook.org, I think is our website. Um, I'm playing a concert with a wonderful violinist, Kangwon Kim, um, here in Madison, broke violinist with um, a great cellist and gambas, Tulio Rondon. Yes. Um, and he uh, also teaches in the UW system. Um, so we're gonna, that's going to be in November at the Arts and Literature Lab, um, which is a venue in Madison. Um, most of my energy right now, I, I have an experimental music project which gets pretty out there, um, called Basidium, B-A-S-I-D-I-U-M. 
And uh, it's my favorite thing that I'm doing right now, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just put stuff up online on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. And they're, they're just kind of extended experimental sonic sessions. Um, we never know what we're going to play. We just start playing, see what happens. So it's sort of like dropping paint on a blank canvas. Wow, that's excellent. Best of luck with all of that and with uh, whatever next year brings as well. And thanks so much for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. Hey, everybody. Happy practicing all weekend and next week. And we'll see you this time next Friday. Take care.